this Easter morning. Uh, we're going to be looking at Luke's account of the resurrection of Jesus. It's found in Luke 24, and I'm going to have all the words up here on the screen. You can follow along. If you're unfamiliar with who Luke is, it's one of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Luke was a physician. He was also a historian of the early church, traveling companion of Paul, who gathered the eyewitness testimonies of Jesus' ministry. And then he wrote Luke, which was the account of Jesus' ministry. And then he wrote the sequel, known as Acts, which was the account of the early church. And we're going to be focusing this morning particularly on the story of Jesus walking on the road to Emmaus with a couple of disciples. But I want to begin just in verse 1 so we can again read the account of the resurrection. So let's read Luke 24. I'll read this out loud. Luke 24, 1 through 32. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you, while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, About seven miles from Jerusalem, they were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened here in these days? What things, he asked About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but they didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see him. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he was going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us? While he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us. This is God's word. Lord, we pray that you would please open our ears and open our hearts to help us to understand what this means, to apply it to our lives. We want to see you and 
experience you this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, in this passage, Jesus has risen from the dead, and now we see him traveling on the road to a place called Emmaus with two of his disciples, a man named Cleopas and then another disciple who's unnamed. And they're, up, they're upset. They're downcast because Jesus, their leader, has died, and they don't know what to make of it all. And the risen Jesus arrives, and he starts to walk with them, but they are kept from recognizing him, it says. They're kept from recognizing him. And I want to use that this morning to talk a little bit about the barriers that keep us from knowing God because we see in this passage three barriers. And I think, again, some of you out here experience some of these barriers when it comes to your understanding of God. And if you don't personally, then you know people in your life who do. And I want to use this to talk about the barriers to belief in Jesus and then some of the clues to belief we see. Three barriers, two clues, and then one step to belief in Jesus this morning. The first thing we see is there's a hiddenness barrier. Again, going back to verses 15 to 16, it says, They talked and discussed these things with each other, and Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. There's a hiddenness barrier that keeps us from believing in Jesus and believing in God. And I don't know why. It doesn't really say exactly why they were kept from believing in Jesus. I don't think, you know, he was wearing a disguise or something like that. I think there's something about something supernatural that was going on there that was keeping them from understanding that this is Jesus who is walking along with you. But whatever it was, their inability to recognize Jesus is consistent with what the Bible tells us about our ability to know God and see God, that there's a hiddenness to God. There's something supernatural that needs to be overcome in order for us to truly see and know God. In 2 Corinthians 3 and 4, Paul uses the analogy of a veil to explain this. In 2 Corinthians 4, 3 through 4, he says, Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age, who is Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. It's kind of frightening. But the point that he seems to be making here is that those who don't believe in God, those who don't, don't see the glory of Jesus... It's not just because they're, they're ignorant or, or stupid. It's not because we are stupid or something like that. It's that there's something supernatural going on. There's some sort of veil, some sort of hiddenness barrier here that prevents people from seeing God, from experiencing Jesus for who he is. And then in 2 Corinthians three, sixteen, Paul says, but whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. And I know some of you even sitting out here or listening at home, you, you look around, and you're just like, I just don't get it. You know, I look around, I see these people raising their hands and worshiping God and all of this, and I just don't understand why they're so gullible, why they believe in this, this God or this Jesus. Why do they think that Jesus is risen from the dead? And if this passage is correct, it's saying there is a hiddenness barrier. There is, there is this veil prevents us from knowing God, from seeing the glory of Jesus. And that whenever anyone turns to God, that veil is lifted. And we see God in a way that we did not see him before. My own story is that I was 18 years old when I turned to God. I grew up, I went to church off and on, but it was never something where I knew God or it meant anything to me and the Bible meant nothing. And I, I, I had no desire to sing, to pray, any of that stuff. And but it was at the beginning of college where I came to faith in Jesus. And I can testify to the truth of this, that 
there was a before and after that happened where all of a sudden the Bible started to come alive and it was as if it was speaking to me and, and I had a desire to know God that was not there before. A desire to be around other Christians that was not there before, to, to worship, to pray, to know God. There was this hunger, this desire that had not been there before that all of a sudden was there and it was nothing that anyone taught me about. It was nothing that, it was just was something that happened on the inside. From a simple prayer by my bedside, you know, by my bed at, at, at uh, Yukon, just kneeling and praying from that moment on, there was something that had changed on the inside. When, as Paul says here, there's this hiddenness barrier, there's this veil that gets lifted when we turn to the Lord, that his spirit is put inside of us and all of a sudden we come alive and can know God in a way that we previously did not. It's like the blind man in John 9, 25, when Jesus healed him, he said, one thing I know, I was blind, but now I see. I can't explain it. I can't put into words. All I know is that before I couldn't see and now I can. The disciples, Cleopas and whoever this other disciple, walking along the road to Emmaus are kept from recognizing Jesus and who he is. And that's consistent, that there is this hiddenness barrier that keeps people from believing in God. And so it's not just that either we're gullible or they're stupid or ignorant or anything like that. It's just that there is something supernatural that needs to happen in order for people to see God and see the glory of Jesus. There's something supernatural that needs to happen. Paul writes about this in Ephesians 1. He says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. You didn't know you had eyes in your heart, did you? Here Paul is praying that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened, that somehow you'd be able to see the spirit of wisdom and revelation that is not there previously, to see God, to know he is real. So please, before we go any further, before we go any further, Recognize that for some of you, this is where you are. That this makes absolutely no sense to you. Because it's like there's a veil that's separating you from being able to see God and the glory of Jesus. And so, Lord, we do pray for anyone who is in that position today, hearing these words, that you would lift the veil, that they would see you and experience you and the glory of Jesus today. Amen. The second barrier we see here in this passage, I would call the expectation barrier. Sometimes we're prevented from really knowing God because of that veil, because of the hiddenness of God. Other times it's because of expectations we place on God. If you go back to the passage in verse 17, Jesus asks, What are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. And one of them named Cleopas asked him, Are you only a visitor to Jerusalem, and you do not know the things that have happened here in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. That last sentence there, those are words of expectation, right? We had an expectation that this Jesus had come to redeem Israel. What was going on in that time was that the, the Jews were under the oppression of the Roman Empire at the time. And so this belief had grown that there was a Messiah who was going to come and was going to rescue Israel from oppression to Rome and redeem Israel and restore them to its former glory. And they thought this Jesus was going to be that Messiah who was going to come and overthrow the Roman government. 
we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. But instead, Jesus was arrested, crucified, put in the grave, and they were completely disillusioned. They had an expectation on God, on the Messiah, of what he would be like, and he did not meet their expectation, and they were crushed. And you think about how many of you and how many of people in your life is this true of, that you don't believe in God because you have expectations on him, of if he's a God, this is how he should act. And how often that happens, especially when things go wrong in our lives. When something bad happens and we just don't understand in our hearts how any good God could allow that to happen because we have our expectations on if there's a God, this is how this God should act. And we miss God. We don't believe because he doesn't fulfill those expectations. That someone we love dies. The disease or illness we're praying for does not go away. The marriage we've been crying out for does not turn around and get healed. The job gets lost. Prayers go unanswered and we just don't understand. Sometimes it's that expectation barrier that gets in the way that we, like those disciples, have expectations on how God should act and then he doesn't act in that way. But maybe, just maybe, God has a bigger view in mind. That maybe, just maybe, The Messiah had come not to overthrow Rome, but for something bigger, to overcome sin and the devil and death. And in order to do that, he needed to die on that cross, paying the penalty for the sins of the world. And even though they didn't think it met the expectations of what a God should do, God was not absent. He was up to something. Isaiah 55 says this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Some of you have a barrier that has kept you from believing in God, and it's because there are expectations you have placed on God, on how you think he should act. And when things don't go the way that you think they should, you reject God. And can I encourage you this morning to lay down your expectations, just like these disciples needed to lay down their expectations of what the Messiah should be like and to trust that God is up to something much bigger. Elizabeth Elliot put it this way, God is God. Because he is God, he is worthy of my trust and obedience. I will find rest nowhere but in his holy will that is unspeakably beyond my largest notions of what he is up to. So again, in this passage, we see barriers to belief, three of them in particular. One is the hiddenness barrier, that they're kept from seeing Jesus. And that is the way it is. There's like a veil covering our hearts until we turn to God. And for many people who don't believe, it's because there is something supernatural that needs to be overcome. And sometimes it's an expectation barrier, that we expect God to act in a certain way. And when he doesn't, we say, well, then this God can't exist. The third barrier is this, the supernatural barrier. Sometimes the barrier is just there's something supernatural about what we're talking about this morning, right? We're talking about God. We're talking about a Jesus who rose from the dead. And that can be hard for many people to believe in. Go back to that passage. What is more, the disciples say, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning but didn't find his body. They came and told us they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. 
essentially what they're saying here is they're telling us these miraculous stories that are hard to believe. They saw angels, that the body's no longer there, that it's risen from the dead, and they can't make sense of it. And certainly that is one of the major barriers for people to believe in God, to see the glory of Jesus, is that supernatural barrier. There's many places around the world, many cultures around the world where they just take that for granted, that there's a supernatural element to this life. There's the spiritual realm. But in America, we tend to be a little more scientific. We tend to be a little more materialistic. If we can't see it with our eyes, we can't touch it with our hands, then we won't believe it. And so we're a little bit more anti-supernatural for sure. And so to talk about raising Jesus from the dead, a lot of people are going to dismiss that right out of hand. But here's the thing. Some people are guilty of what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery, which is a great phrase. Chronological snobbery, the belief that, you know, well, 2,000 years ago, people believed in that sort of thing, right? I mean, they thought people could rise from the dead, but we, you know, we're smarter than them. We are scientifically minded now, and we don't believe that people can just rise from the dead. We know better. But the reality is that, yes, 2,000 years ago, people also did not believe people could rise from the dead either, okay? It wasn't just us today, but people know that when you die, you die, and you don't raise again from the dead. And so this whole message, I just want to go quickly through some of the proofs of the resurrection here. If they were making up the story that Jesus had risen from the dead, nobody would have believed them. The Jews believed at the end of time there would be a general resurrection of the dead. But they did not believe that someone would rise from the dead in the middle of history like Jesus did. And the Greeks and the Romans, they believed that the goal of death was escaping from the body, the prison of the body, that the, the, the spirit was good, the body was evil, and you needed to escape from that body. And so for them to go around preaching that Jesus had rose bodily from the dead and that we would all be raised bodily one day, for them would not be good news. Who wants to be raised again in the prison of the body? So they had just as skeptical an audience as we did. If they were to go and just make up a story that Jesus had risen from the dead, the Jews would have not believed. The Greeks, Romans would not have believed. They would have just rejected it. What about the living eyewitnesses? Again, some people have this idea that it's a game of telephone, right? That Jesus didn't really rise from the dead, but the disciples told in over hundreds of years, people started to believe that Jesus had risen from the dead. But these letters, these gospels are written during the time of the eyewitnesses. That Paul talks about how there's 500 of them who Jesus appeared to who are still living. In other words, go check with the eyewitnesses. There are people still around who have seen the risen Jesus. And Luke is writing this gospel after interviewing the eyewitnesses who can verify, who can fact check what is being written here. These are not games of telephone. These are written within the time of the eyewitnesses. What about the missing body? Again, all they needed to do to squash this rumor of a risen Christ was to produce the body. All they needed to do was produce a body and it would have gone away. But there was no body because he had risen from the dead. What about the other messiahs? In those days, there were plenty of people who claimed to be the messiah. And you know what happened to them? They died and their names had, for the most part, been forgotten with history. And their disciples, their followers went away because they were dead. And the same thing was happening here with Jesus. Lots of people followed him, and then he died, and his disciples were falling away. And his name would have faded out with history if he had not risen from the dead. 
What about the transformed disciples? You have these men, these women who had given up, who were afraid that they were going to be the next ones to be killed by the Romans, hiding away, going back to their jobs. But instead, what happened? Their lives were transformed and they became world-changing people who were unafraid of anything. Transformed not because they made up a lie, but transformed because they saw the risen Christ who had overcome the grave. All it would have taken was one of those disciples say, you know what, under pain of torture, we made up the whole thing. But none of them said that because none of them had made it up. It was true. Jesus had risen from the dead. And if they had made up the story, they would not have told it the way they did, which was all the disciples as cowardly people who ran away, and then the women as the first eyewitnesses. Because in those days, the testimony of women was not even valid in court. So if you're making up the story, you would have not had women be the first eyewitnesses at the tomb because no one would have believed them. And you would not have painted yourselves as the leaders of the early church as these bumbling cowards who denied Jesus and ran away and did not stand up for him. But they told the story as it happened. Even though it painted themselves in a bad light, they did not make it up. This is the true story. And so again, I want to encourage you Some of you here this morning or some people in your life do not believe in God. They do not believe in the resurrection. And there's reasons for that. First and foremost, there is a hiddenness barrier. There is a veil that covers the eyes and the hearts of those who do not believe. And if that's you this morning, pray and ask God to reveal himself to you. And if that's people in your life, pray and ask God to reveal himself to them. And secondly, there's an expectation barrier that we often think we know how God should act just like those disciples thought they knew how the Messiah should behave. But God will not be contained by our boxes. He's up to something larger. And then thirdly, there is a supernatural barrier. And I want to encourage you this morning, there is more proof for the resurrection than for just about anything else in history. It is not a made-up story. It is actually what happened. And so I encourage you, to. there's plenty of evidence out there. Contact me if you need more resources on places to look for that. Those are the barriers to belief. And now I just want to talk about the clues. There's two clues to belief I see in this passage. Go back to verse 25. We see this. All the stories point to Jesus. Verse 25. He said to them, How foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer those things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. There are some barriers to belief, but there are also clues There are also reasons to believe in Jesus, that he rose from the dead, to believe in God. They're walking along on the road to Emmaus, and Jesus goes back to the beginning. And it says he goes through the Old Testament, and he shows them how all of it points to him. Isn't that incredible? Because there's there's never a mention of the name Jesus in the Old Testament, as far as I know, right? But he goes back, and he says he points to them how all of it points to him what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. It would have been something like this. Remember Adam, who failed the test of obedience in the Garden of Eden and passed down the curse of his disobedience to us? I, Jesus, am the true and better Adam. I passed the test of obedience in the Garden of Gethsemane, and I passed down the blessing of obedience to you. Remember how after Adam and Eve fell into sin, how God told them that the serpent would bruise the heel of the woman's descendant, but he would crush the serpent's head. Well, that descendant is Jesus. 
who though bruised on the cross by the enemy, will crush the devil forever. Remember Abel, slain by his brother Cain, even though he was innocent. How his blood cried out for condemnation. Jesus is the true and better Abel, who was also slain even though he was innocent, and whose blood cries out for our acquittal. Remember Abraham, who answered the call of God, left the comfortable and familiar to go to a new place to create a new people for God. Jesus is the true and better Abraham who left the comfort of heaven to come to earth and create a new people of God. Remember God's covenant with Abraham where he cut the pieces of the animals and then he passed between them, declaring that he would never fail them, even if they failed, that he would take the penalty for their sin, for their failure. Jesus is God taking that penalty for their failures. Remember Isaac, Abraham's son, offered up by his father on the mountain, but saved by God. Jesus is the true and better Isaac, offered up by his father on the mountain and sacrificed for us all. Remember Jacob, asleep in the middle of nowhere, dreaming of a stairway to heaven. Jesus is that stairway to heaven. Jesus is heaven come to earth, and he is the way that we get to heaven. Remember Jacob wrestling with God, taking the blow of justice. Jesus is the true and better Jacob who took the, fa- the father's fatal blow of justice that we deserved so that we might receive his grace. Remember Joseph ascended to the right hand of the king of Egypt, forgiving those who betrayed him, using his power to save them and the people of God. Jesus is the true and better Joseph, ascended to the right hand of the king, God the king, forgiving those who betrayed him, using his power to save them. We're only in Genesis in case you haven't noticed. This goes on through the whole Old Testament. Every single story points to him. It's all about him. Moses, standing in the gap between the people and the Lord, mediating a new new covenant, points to Jesus, standing in the gap between the people and the Lord, mediating a new covenant. The rock of Moses, struck with the rod of God's justice to give the people water in the desert points to Jesus, the true and better rock, struck with the rod of God's justice to give us living water. The Passover lamb, innocent, slain, so that the angel of death would pass over the people of God, points us to Jesus, innocent and slain, so the angel of death would pass over us. Manna, bread from heaven, given by God so that his people might live. Jesus is the true bread from heaven, given to us, come down so that his body might be broken for us so we might have eternal life. The tabernacle, the temple, God dwelling in the midst of sinful people points us to Christ, the true temple, Emmanuel, God dwelling with us. Job, the innocent sufferer, interceding for and saving his foolish friends. Jesus is the true and better Job, the truly innocent sufferer who intercedes for and saves us. David, his victory over Goliath, becomes his people's victory, even though they never lifted a stone themselves, points us to Jesus, whose victory is given to us, even though we never lifted a hand. What about God's prophecy that one of David's descendants would sit on the throne forever? Jesus is that descendant, the eternal king who reigns over an eternal kingdom. Psalm 22, the psalmist crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As evil men encircle him piercing his hands and his feet, casting lots for his clothing. Jesus is that man crying out from the cross as he takes our sins and as his father turns his back on him. What about Esther, who risked the palace in order to save her people? Jesus is the true and better Esther who gave up his heavenly palace 
and didn't just risk his life, but gave up his life to save us. What about Jonah, thrown out into the storm, three days in the belly of the great fish before being brought back up so that the other sailors might be saved? Jesus is the true and greater Jonah, thrown out into the storm of God's justice, three days in the grave before rising again so that we might be saved. What about Daniel, seeing a vision of the Son of Man who will be given authority by the Eternal Father to rule over the nations? Jesus is that Son of Man. And what about the Son who will be born, prophesied by Isaiah, who will carry on his shoulders the governments of the world, whose name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace? Or the one whom Isaiah writes about, that the virgin will conceive, they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Or the prophecy in Micah that a child will be born in Bethlehem, who will be ruler over Israel, but whose origins will be from ancient times. Or the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, who will die for the sins of the nations. Are you getting the picture? That's just part of it. Can you imagine what Jesus on that road to Emmaus was doing? The whole thing points to me. The Bible's not a collection of like stories, you know. It is one grand narrative pointing to Jesus and what he did, culminating in his death and resurrection. It's like those movies you watch, like Sixth Sense or Usual Suspects, where, you know, you think you're watching one movie, then in the end, you, something happens that causes you to see the whole thing differently. That's what happens here. And Jesus' death and resurrection makes sense of it all. All the stories point to him. And it's the same way in our world. All the stories point to Jesus and find their fulfillment in him. J.R.R. Tolkien, you may have heard of him. He wrote an essay called On Fairy Stories. And let's see if I have the... uh, He said this about the resurrection. There is no tale ever told that men would rather find was true and none which so many skeptical men have accepted as true on its own merits. He said all the fairy stories, the British word for fairy tales, all the stories point to this story the death and resurrection of the Son of God. You think of the movies that people want to watch, the movies that gross the most money. They're not the ones that are full of gritty reality where things don't always work out the way you want or the bad guy wins and love fails, right? You get to the end of the movie like that, you're like, why did I just waste two hours? The movies that people want to watch are those ones where good triumphs decisively over evil, where victory is snatched from the jaws of defeat, where love is eternal, where death never ends, where there's a happy ever after. Why? Because that is the story to which all the stories point. That is this story. Where victory is snatched from the jaws of defeat, where love is eternal, where death is not the end, there is a happy ever after. All the stories point to this story. All roads lead to the gospel and find their fulfillment in the death and resurrection of Jesus. The first clue to belief is that, that all the stories point to Jesus, not just in the Bible, but in our world as well. And the second one is very much, the second clue is very similar to that, that our hearts are longing for him. Go back to the story again in verse 28. As the disciples approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. And so he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized Jesus and he disappeared from their sight. And they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? I love that phrase there. We're not our hearts burning within us. Take a moment and just consider your hearts. 
at how our hearts are longing for this to be true, longing for Jesus, for his death and resurrection. Do you truly want to believe that good will triumph over evil? That there will be justice? That there is a happy ever after? That death is not the end? That love is eternal? That there is an act of sacrificial heroism that saves the day? Could that really be true? Is it just wishful thinking on our parts? Or is that truly at the heart of reality? The longings in our heart are actually true. Despite all the evil and discouragement that comes from living in this world, could that actually be true? Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the hearts of men, yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. It's a great line that says there's something about God has placed eternity in our hearts. There is something that we're longing for that he's placed there, that despite the evil of this world and the tragedies of this world, we can hang on to. That when you come to a funeral, when a loved one dies, do you find yourself at peace with that being the end? Or is there something inside you that rages against that? That deep down knows that death is evil, that it is an enemy, that it was never meant to be this way? Do you long for life beyond the grave? for reunion, for death not to have the final word. It's not an accident that that longing is in your heart, that he has placed eternity in our hearts, and that longing is there because you are longing for what is true, that death is not the end, that there is love that is eternal. As Jesus put it, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? There is a longing in our hearts that death would not be the end. And either it's just a foolish and we need to get over it. Or it's been placed there because it's true. Because that longing points us to the true, beautiful story of the death and resurrection of Jesus. There's also a longing in our hearts for justice, right? For justice. That those things that are wrong in this world would be set right. That good would win. That evil would lose. That there would be no more suffering that things would be made right. And every time we're faced with injustice in the world, we can either become callous or we can recognize that, no, that longing inside of us is true. It's been put there by God. It's a longing that one day will be fulfilled. Revelation 21, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. If you find in your heart a longing for justice, a longing that evil would cease to be, that suffering would be no more. It's not there by accident that God has put that in there. It's a longing that will be fulfilled on that day when we're with him forever. What else do we long for? I think we long to live a life that matters, to know that there is a purpose to this difficult life that we lead, 
to know that this life is not meaningless. I mean, that's more and more, if you look at the news these days, more and more becoming a thing that you can see meaning and purpose going down, right? Even life expectancy going down. The desire to have kids going down. Anxiety and depression going up. General just meaninglessness and purposelessness just on the rise all around us. As we reject God, as we reject this this truth, that there is a God, that there is Jesus, there is a death and resurrection, there is purpose, there is meaning in life. It's not just meaningless. At the end of Paul's great chapter on the resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15, he says, Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know your labor in the Lord is not in vain. In other words, he's saying, it's not in vain. Everything you do for God, it's not in vain. It matters eternally. As Jesus put it, If anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones because he's my disciple, I tell you the truth, he will certainly not lose his reward. It's beautiful. It's Jesus' way of saying every single little thing you do, every little act of service you do for another person matters eternally. Whatever that reward means, it's his way of communicating that you were created for a purpose, that your life has meaning, that everything you do matters eternally, that it's not just meaningless life and then you die and you're forgotten. Your hearts long to live a life that means something that is a life of purpose. And you can either just forget it and say, well, I just need to dispense with that because life is ultimately meaningless. Or you can accept that God has put that in your heart. The longing for meaning and purpose, the longing for justice, the longing for eternal love, all of that. Our hearts burn within us at this story because it's true. It's the story to which all the stories point. That's the wonder of Easter. And so now let me leave you with one step to belief. Believe that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead to defeat sin and death. On that road to Emmaus, Jesus is walking with those disciples and they're crushed because they thought this Messiah was come to rescue them from slavery and oppression to Rome. But he had come for a greater enemy, the devil, death, sin. He had come to destroy those. That by his death, he was that perfect sacrifice that would pay the punishment for our sins. He'd die for our sins, for everything we'd ever done wrong or everything we would do wrong. And by believing and trusting in him, we would receive his righteousness, his right relationship with God, forgiveness of sins, eternal life, adopted as children of God with his Holy Spirit inside of us. All the longings of your heart are met there by Jesus. Easter is the story to which all the stories point because it's true. There is meaning in the world. There will be justice. Death is not the end. Love is eternal. And if you don't know Jesus, believe in him today and put your faith and trust in him that he might lift that veil and cause you to see him and know him. Romans 10, 9 through 10 says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. Saved from sin, saved from death, saved from meaninglessness and purposelessness, saved to a life of eternal life, joy, and peace. If you don't know him, 
and come to him. He hears you. It's not, these are not magic words, but you can pray along with these words or you can just pray between you and the Lord. But let me read these words. And if you don't know him, pray these words with me. Jesus, I believe that you are the Messiah, the son of God. I believe that in you is found eternal life, life to the full. I believe that apart from faith in you, I will die in my sins, separated from God from all, for all eternity. But I believe that you love me so much that you died on the cross in my place, taking the penalty for my sin, and that you rose from the grave, conquering death. I turn from my sinful, self-centered way of life, and I believe in you as my Savior and Lord. Amen.